All right, good morning, Village Church. Wow, there's a lot of you this morning. That's great. It's good to see you all. Hey, in January this month, but the year would be 2003, January of 2003, um, this American, Australian-American TV show debuted for the first time on the Discovery Channel. And by me mentioning Australian-American, maybe you already know what TV show it was. It ran for 17, uh, 14 years, rather. Uh, the show was called Mythbusters, and I, I watched a few episodes. I, I got to admit, I think as a kid, I, like, believed in the Loch Ness Monster. You know, when I saw that, like, 1934 picture, I, I can tend to, like, believe in some, like, conspiracy theories a little bit, or, like, yeah, is this really true, and myths, urban legends, chupacabra kind of stuff, right? But, but this show had some really interesting myths that would be busted, right? Like, um, could a human being really escape from Alcatraz, you know, unaided by anyone or anything. That was, that was one of the episodes. Or one was a simple one. Like if you, you know, with a shockwave was going off, if you dove in your pool or into water, could you avoid a shockwave by being underwater? These kinds of things. And the season, uh, the episodes, or rather the TV show, went on for 14 years, 282 episodes. Does that sound overwhelming? 14 years of myths, urban legends. 282 episodes where they would go and they would test these things. They would see either they would bust the myth and say, yeah, yeah, this is a myth. It's not true. Or they'd say, well, maybe partially in some way could be plausible under certain circumstances. Or for most of them, they're like, or for some of them, like, yeah, yeah, it's confirmed. This actually is not a myth. It's true. This is real. You can jump in to a pool, avoid the shockwave. I don't know if that's true, but it might be. Watch the show. You'll find out, right? 282 episodes. And when I was thinking about that, what it, what it reminded me about is this, that there are all kinds of myths about all kinds of things. There have to be. For there to be 282 on one TV show over 14 years, there are all kinds of myths about all kinds of things. And we are prone to start them. We are prone to start these kinds of myths or folklores or urban legends. We are prone, listen, we are prone to believe them. We are. And the reason we are prone to believe them is because we also know we're prone to spread them. The reason why these myths, these urban legends, folklores, legends, why they spread is because we believe them. And so we share them, we spread them, we tell them to others. There are all kinds of myths about all kinds of things, listen to me, including the church. And we are prone, we are prone to start them. And we have shown as professing Christians, we are prone to actually believe them, some of them, unfortunately. And we are prone, unfortunately, to share some of them. And this has been true from the beginning of the church, from the beginning of the life of the church, from the earliest days of the church, this has been true. That's why when you go home today and when you read your Bible this week, you can open up to any one of the New Testament letters that were written by Paul or John or Peter or James and when you open up those letters, what you'll find is they're writing the letters because they're addressing a myth, a misconception that the people of God have believed about the church, about Jesus, about salvation. They believed a myth. They're thinking wrongly about the church. So those authors write those letters to say, no, that's a myth, but this is the reality. This is the mark of the church. This is what it really is. And then most often they also add a metaphor. The most, they, they add a picture. They say, this is a picture actually 
of what it actually should look like because they were writing to audiences that were by and large illiterate, and so they would give them a picture so that they could see what it actually was. This has been true from the beginning, and it's still true today. We are still believing myths about what it means to be part of the church or what the church actually is. I think we actually, we got a new myth going in 2020. It goes something like this. You don't have to go to church. You don't even have to watch a church service to be a functioning member of the church. And I know it's been a rough year, but, but, but th- that myth is being propagated and it's being believed. 32% of professing Christians, according to the Barna Research Group, I told you a couple months ago, are not attending church services anywhere, nor watching any church services of any kind. They're totally disengaged from the life of the church. Now, listen, technically, could you be a Christian and not go to a church service or watch church online if you're watching online? Yes. God could have done a work in your heart, and you could be a new person, a Christian, as we'll talk about this morning, but it probably doesn't bode well if you're not being with the people of God over a long period of time and It just is not great evidence to bust the myth. This is one of the reasons why we are doing this sermon series. We're calling it Re-Church. And the preposition re means a couple of things. One, it means regarding or having to do with or about the church. But the preposition also means to, to start again, to do again, to do once more. And so over the next eight weeks, we want to ask the question, what is the church? And how can we get back to what Jesus intended it to be once more? And to answer those questions and to sort of bust through the myths about the church, we're going to have to address some of them. Starting with one that's, I think, the most basic. It's myth number one this morning. We're going to talk about it. The myth is this, that we are part of the church because we are part of the life of the church. We're part of the church because we're part of the life of the church. We're part of the church because we go to church. We're part of the church because we go to Bible studies that are offered at our church. We go to the church, part of the church, because we are involved in events at our church. We go to the church because, we're part of the church because we, we do the things that church people do. We might even read scripture. We might even sign up for a class. We might attempt to pray. We might be involved in leadership in some way. This myth has been propagated over the last number of years, I think really the last 10 years, with a lot of churches saying things like, hey, belong before you believe, which again has a little bit of truth to it, which the myths always do. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian or you're a visitor, or if you're joining us online, can I just say, we're so glad you're here. And I hope you feel like you belong. This is a really gracious church. It's a warm church. You should feel like we want you to be here. But as we'll see this morning, being part of the church is actually believing in the one whose church it is. Believing and belonging go hand in hand. Those things go together. This myth that we're part of the church because we're part of the life of the church, it can be dangerous because it can give us a false sense of security about our spiritual lives. And I think this is in part what we see happening in the life of Nicodemus this morning. Nicodemus, in his interaction with Jesus, says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Nicodemus was not only part of the church, he was not only part of the life of the church of his day, the synagogue, 
but he was a teacher. He, he was a leader. He was helping to organize things and teach classes and give sermons and run the church. I mean, he was as involved in the life of the church as you could possibly be. But then he meets Jesus, and he hears the teaching of Jesus, and he sees the fruit of the ministry of Jesus, and he obviously recognizes there is something that is missing. There's something that I don't have. And maybe you've had this experience before. If you're a Christian, this was likely your experience, unless you grew up in the church from the time you were really small, this was likely your experience. At one point in time, you visited a Christian church. You started attending. You got to know some people. And maybe you were sitting there on a Sunday morning or in an event or in a Bible study, and you were thinking to yourself, you know, I'm doing the same things that these people are doing. I'm showing up at the Bible study. I'm hearing the same sermons. I'm, maybe I even signed up for a reading plan or something. But there is something different about what they seem to be experiencing and what I'm experiencing in my own life. There's something different. It's not the same. Or maybe you're having this experience this morning. I I think at the 8.30, there were a few people that were having that experience here this morning in this parking lot. They're hearing the same words. It's the same sermon. It's the same concept, the same stuff, the same presence, the same fellowship, the same conversation. And yet I know for a fact there's a couple of people that are saying things to me like, there's something different about what other people have that I don't have. And Jesus tells Nicodemus what it is. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that word born again, that term born again, hasn't it become kind of a pejorative term in some sense in our culture? It's like, oh yeah, those are those really weird people that are super crazy about Jesus. The term born again is not a pejorative term. It's not a strange term. It's a term that Jesus himself used to describe people that have been given new life by him. You see, we are not part of the church because we're part of the life of the church, but because we've been given new life by the one whose church it is. Let me say that again. We're not part of the church because we're part of the life of the church, the events, the programs. We're part of the church because we've been given new life by the one whose church it is. Now look, this idea may be very familiar to most of you. This was a foreign idea to Nicodemus. It might be a foreign idea to some of you. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter for a second time into his mother's womb and be born? The question proves how foreign this idea is to Nicodemus. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He cannot be part of God's people. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't marvel at this. This is the most basic thing about being part of the church. This is the most fundamental thing about what it means to be a Christian, one of God's people. You must be born again. You must have new life. And if you are a Christian and you've experienced this new life and you know what it's about, you know that one of the places in the New Testament that describes it most clearly is in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 where it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also lived in the passage of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead in our sins. We were physically alive, spiritually dead, walking away from God in ways that look really bad to others on the outside and ways that also look really good to others sometimes on the outside. Rebellion and religion are both both equal opportunity offenders in terms of our distance from God. Neither of them will make us alive to God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here it is, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That God has given us, God has gifted us new life in himself. Again, we are not part of the church because we're part of the life of the church. We're part of the church because we've been given new life by the one whose church it is. Question might be, well, how does that happen? How, how do we get that new life that we need? Jesus tells Nicodemus something that seems a little cryptic on the surface. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Look, it is not mystical in any way, but it certainly is a little mysterious. Like, how does this happen? How how, how can one person come and, and be experiencing the same things as another person? And hearing the same words and the same sermons and in the same Bible study and going to the same events. And one person seems to have something radically different, a radically different kind of life that's obvious and another doesn't. How does that happen? Later, uh, Paul would write to a young pastor who's leading a group of God's people, kind of like Nicodemus was, just in a different season in the life of God's people. And Paul would tell Titus, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And here it is again. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He says that God God gives us a new heart. He does something. He takes a heart that's hard toward him, and he makes it into a heart that's soft toward him. It's a regenerating work. It's a work that only God can do. As theologians talk about this idea of regeneration, it's an idea of something we can't do for ourselves. It's something that God does for us. A couple chapters later in John chapter six, Jesus will say it this way, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus, it's, it's, it's not mystical. It is a little mysterious. The Father's gonna draw you in and you're gonna sense the God drawing you in and, and you're gonna know that something's happening. Your heart is becoming soft to the things of God. You wanna be around the people of God. You wanna hear the word of God. You wanna read the word of God. You wanna pray for some reason. Like you're interested in spiritual things. You're interested in who Jesus is. God is drawing you in in some what feels like a mysterious way, a beautiful way, Well, how does it happen? That's what Nicodemus asked. He said, how will these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not yet understand these things? And I gotta tell you, when I read those words a couple of weeks ago, reviewing this passage again, 
that kind of stuck with me for a moment. I realized, yeah, you could be a teacher like I am right now. You could be someone that's so involved in the life of the church that you're actually teaching other people. I guarantee you, there are men and women that are standing up today in places like this, and they're saying something about the Bible. There's, they're quoting some scripture passage, and there's somewhere in our country, maybe even in our county, maybe even our city, and they still don't understand these things yet. You could be that involved in the life of God's church and not be changed by the new life given by the one whose church it is. Jesus goes on to say, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus taught in ways that people were amazed by. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Here's where it gets down to it. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus talking about himself, of course. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Here it is. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. How does it happen? It happens through belief, which is a gift from God. That God grants us a heart that, that wants to and that will believe. It's through belief. It's a gift of God. It's, it's through belief in, in the life of Jesus and the, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. It's through belief in the life of Jesus, the sinless life of Jesus on our behalf. It's through believing, through faith, that Jesus lived a life that we could never live, a perfectly sinless life before God. It's through believing in the death of Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross in our place and for our sins. He died the death that we should have died. And it's believing in the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus raised from the dead three days later to give us a life we could never have otherwise, a life that's forgiven for our sin and that's free to live our life now in relationship with God. This has always been what the church has believed. Did you know that this is what was preached the very first sermon in the life of what we would now call the church after the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus? The very first sermon that we have record of in the life of the church was a sermon that was given by the apostle Peter. And he basically tells the people that he's preaching to these things. By the way, they were the ones that actually killed Jesus, he tells them. And after the sermon, they get to a place where they go, what should we do? Which is every preacher's dream. You know what I mean? It's every pastor's dream. Like the the, the sermon's preached and everyone's like, what do we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here it is. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Look at everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, and you have this new life, you know that this promise has been given to you. And, and when you hear things like this, your, your heart should leap. If you're not yet a Christian, you're here this morning or you're with us online, this promise can be for you as well. If you sense Jesus drawing you to himself and you believe in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you profess him by faith, that this promise is also for you. And if you're watching, it's for you. I think this is our good news this morning. It's connected to our good news this morning. And it would be something like this, that we can have the new life Jesus has for us and we can be part of the new community Jesus has made for us, the church, when we believe in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus for us. 
when we believe that he lived and he died and he rose for us. That's how we become part of the church. The question that the early church may have been asking was, what does this look like? And I told you before, there was not only myths that they were believing and marks that the writers were pointing them to, but there were metaphors that they were giving them, pictures that they were showing them. And one of them is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. We're the temple of the living God. He gave a picture to, to people that was a largely Jewish audience. And in Corinth, they knew a little bit about the temple. There were Jews and Gentiles mixed in that audience. They knew what the temple was because it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. The Jews knew that God's presence dwelt there. He dwelt with them. What Paul is telling them is it's not just that God dwells with you, it's that his spirit will dwell in you and will give you new life as he's present not only with but in you. Later in Romans, Paul would say it this way, and this is hands down one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And if you catch what Paul is saying, he's saying that the spirit of Christ now is going to dwell in you and live in you. What is the new life that's given to us by the one whose church it is? It's his life. It's his life given to us by his spirit. You might say, well, what would that new life look like? If we are given the spirit of Christ and he dwells in us, what would that new life look like? Three things as we wrap our time together this morning. The first is it'll look like a life that's lived with a new perspective, that you'll see everything through a gospel lens, that you'll see everything through a grid of, of the mind of Christ, that you'll see things in life. You'll, you'll look at everything in life and even all the current events that are going on around us in, in our lives today. We'll look at them through gospel-oriented lenses at the end of the day. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That now we can see everything when we see Jesus. We can see everything very clearly, the way he would see things. In a few minutes, we're going to sing the song Grace Alone, which I know we really love to sing as a church because it is all by grace alone. And we're going to sing this phrase, at your touch, my sleeping spirit was awakened. We're going to sing these words, on my darkened heart, the light of Christ has shone. That he has shown us who he is and we can see now who he is and we can see things through that lens, looking through his heart, his mind, his eyes. Secondly, that we would have a new posture, a new way that our life would be lived, new posture to our lives. And I think that's described accurately by the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians where Paul says the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of this life? What's the, the posture of this life? Love and joy and peace and, and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. It's that we have love instead of hate, joy instead of sorrow, peace instead of unrest. Patience instead of frustration, kindness instead of maliciousness, you know, goodness instead of malness, faithfulness instead of faithlessness, gentleness instead of harshness, self-control instead of a lack of self-control, right? This is the life. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is our new posture. That's what it should look like. 
And we should also have a new power to, to live these things out. Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's not just that you're going to tell other people what I've done, although that's what you're going to do because that's what it means to be a witness. It also means you're going to show other people something of what my life looks like. They're going to be able to know that you're a person that sees things differently. You look through gospel, Jesus-oriented lenses. You're a person that lives differently. Your life is lived out in the fruit of the Spirit. You're a person that has a different kind of power. There's something about your life. There's an effectiveness about your life that they just don't have. Now, for most of you, you're probably listening to these things. You're like, these are very familiar things. I hope they're very beautiful things, even though they're familiar. But if you're honest with yourself, you may also be asking yourself the question, well, what if these things aren't always true of my life? Or what if these things aren't mostly true of my life? I mean, I'm sitting here among God's people. I would say, yeah, I'm one of those. I've been given new life. But what if my life isn't lived much of the time or most of the time with a new gospel-oriented lens or perspective? What if my life isn't lived most of the time by the fruits of the Spirit? You know, I'm more hateful and angry and frustrated and mean-spirited or whatever, things like that, you know? What, what, what if I don't have this new kind of power much of the time? I just feel like powerless in life. I don't feel the power to change or to be new. What is up with that? Am I part of the church? I think there's two options if we ask ourselves those questions. The first option is that Possibly we're not yet new. I mean, if that's the reality, maybe we're not yet new. John Piper wrote a book called Finally Alive a few years back, and the book was written for people in the church. And early on in the book, on page 16, Piper says this, the research is not finding, the research that he did for this book, is not finding that born-again people are permeated with worldliness. We typically think that's what it is. Piper says, no, no, the research is finding that the church is permeated with people who are not born again, who have not truly been changed from the inside out. That could be one of the options, and it's, it's one every, every person that sits in any church seat should consider every now and then. The, section, the second option might be the option that's more true, I think, for most of us, maybe. It's not just that we're not yet new, it's that we need to be renewed. We need to be renewed again and again. Because, see, the Bible tells us that we are filled with God's Spirit. The Bible also tells us that we can grieve God's Spirit. We can even quench God's Spirit by the sin that's in our life. Grieving God's Spirit seems to be step one, and it's bad enough. Quenching God's Spirit seems to be step two, which seems further down the road and really tough place to be. When, when sin has so enveloped our lives that we don't just grieve God's Spirit, we quench the Spirit. We, we, it's so diluted in our life. I got to be honest with you, I had a, a couple moments this week as I was reviewing these things and preparing for the sermon where I, I thought about my own life in this way, and I'm just going to be as honest as I can as you as a church. I mean, I, there was a moment this week where, where I was talking to a friend and they said something like, you know, I, sometimes I feel like I hate those kinds of people. And rather than saying under my breath, like, well, you must not be very spiritual, I thought to myself, you know what? I think I might too. Like, I, I, ha I, th I think there's hatred that boils up in my heart towards certain kinds of people, and that's, that's incongruent with the Spirit of God. 
we went out with some lifelong friends this week, and we had a great dinner in a beautiful spot, and they're people that I'm like as comfortable with as I could possibly be. They know everything about our lives. And, um, and we talked about all kinds of things. And at one point, you know, we came back to the house, and I was frustrated about some things, and they're the people I guess I could share it with. <laughs> and I did. I gave it to them, you know, <laughs> unfiltered, as unfiltered as I could get, I guess. And I woke up the next morning, and I was reviewing these notes, and I was reading this passage, and I thought to myself, oh, my gosh. And so I did one of those, like, apology texts. Have you ever done one of those where you're like, hey, listen, <laughs> You know, I really am a Christian, and, you know, <laughs> it was one of those texts where, like, look, you know, you know, and, and, and I'm sorry, like, I, I'm frustrated, and I just, I want to be better than this, and this is not, I know this is not who I'm supposed to be. And, of course, I got the text back, like, oh, we love you, you know, it's fine, blah, blah, blah. Thank you, guys. Um, but, but it gave me pause to just think, you know, I need to be renewed in some ways, and especially in this season where it just seems like, gosh, everything is pressing in. And, oh, it's just exhausting. I need to be renewed by God's spirit. I don't want to live like a non-Christian, you know, saying that I'm a Christian. I don't want to do that. And I don't want that for you. We want our church to be renewed by Christ. You know, the good news is, is that, that we can be. That the very same spirit that gives us new life in the first place is the very same Spirit of God that will renew our life when we do the same things, when we confess our sin, when we repent, when we trust in Jesus, when we look to him, when we call out to him, he'll be there. He's gentle. He's lowly. He'll come alongside us. He'll forgive us. He'll empower us. He'll enable us. He'll renew us by his Spirit. And I pray he does for you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we... Um, We, many of us, need to be renewed by your spirit. We want to be. And so we confess to you this morning, we need to be. We're sorry that we haven't looked at things with your perspective, gospel lens, your eyes, your heart, your mind. Forgive us for not walking in the fruit of the spirit. If we say we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Lord, empower us, help us to walk in the spirit. Help us to live in a new power. Empower us for these things. We want to live like you in front of other people that don't yet know you. For some of us, Lord, we may um, need to be made new for the first time. And I pray that if there's anyone this morning here or watching online that, that needs to be renewed for the first time, that they would sense you drawing them to yourself, that they'd believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God come to save them from their sin. Thank you for touching our waking heart, our sleeping hearts. Thank you for awakening us to these things. Lord, help us rejoice in them. Help us to celebrate them. Help us to believe them. And help us to share them. Help us to believe these things, to share these things, to share the truth about you, about who your church really is. We ask these things in your name and for your sake, Jesus. Amen.